1: time somebody is back this week and it is blue chew this episode is sponsored by blue chew they bring you the first chewable with the same fda approved Active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. Blue Chew is made in the good old US of A. It is prescribed online by a licensed physician, so you don't have to go to a doctor or wait in line. It is cheaper than a pharmacy, and they prepare and ship it right to you in a discreet package. No awkwardness, and you don't need to leave the house. It's great. So go to bluechew.com. Get your first shipment free when you use the special promo code. It's going to be a new one, Dr. Tom, and just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's bluechew.com. Promo code Dr. Tom to try it for free. Blue Chew, remember, they are a better, cheaper choice, and we like to thank them for sponsoring the show. Remember, you, you can obviously uh, support us by supporting them. You can help make this podcast grow even more by going to bluechew.com. Again, make sure you use the promo code Dr. Tom. And, of course, one more time, bluechew.com. Dr. Tom, you got to love Blue Chew.
2: Oh, I, I do. I, I've tried it before, and uh, especially when they were one of our sponsors. And uh, it, it is a great product. Uh, so I, I enjoyed it myself. Let me just say that. I, I don't know how far I can really uh, stress uh, about Blue Chew. But, but, yeah, great product. Try it out. And you get a free opportunity when you contact them. So, yeah.
1: Yes. Fantastic. And just that's D-R-T-O-M, Dr. Tom. Pretty simple. BlueChew.com, a free, uh, sh- uh, free product. shipping. So very, very good stuff there from Bluetooth.
2: It's a pleasure, man. Anytime I hear about a power trip, I want to be a part of it, man. It's great. Two, three, four—doesn't matter how many it takes, but as long as we have some power going on, it's all good. I, I think the first thing that everyone has to understand is you have to have a passion for this. It can't—you can't be in it uh, for the money and uh, fame and fortune, because unfortunately, uh, that doesn't happen to very many of us. Um, but you have to—you have to be in this for the love. And passion of professional wrestling, and I will go ahead and say slash sports entertainment, and that's that's the first and foremost thing. I also stress, and I also stress that I, in my opinion, and wrestling is, as Steve Colonel used to say, wrestling is just an opinion. There's not just one way to do it, uh, but the most important thing in this business to me is attitude, and. Uh, <laughs> I've been guilty, as everybody else, of having a bad attitude at times and and um, a great attitude at times. But uh, those, are, those are the main things I instill, is you have to have a passion for this. You have to really love it, uh, to be good at it, and um, uh, everything else will fall into place.
0: Influx of people wanting to get in now, the younger generation kind of wanting to explore.
2: Yeah, you know, when I look around and uh, – uh, the, the few independent shows I go to are some of the, the camps and seminars that I do, um, the guys don't really see the big picture. They see WWE. They they know Raw and SmackDown, and it's not their fault. That's, that's just all they have access to, and that's all they see. And it can be really enticing and, and uh, intoxicating, I guess is the word I'm looking for, because watching on Monday nights... Uh, you you see the 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 glitz the glamour the pyro and and uh, the excitement but what you don't see are the houses that uh, you draw maybe a thousand people or less or or the road and and years ago when I first broke in I can romanticize all day long and I and I will about how great the road was because it was back then that was it was a different kind of business but these days. Um, uh, I don't think the young guys and girls getting in today, of course, not all of them are this way, but but the most, the, the majority of them are. They see it as a different uh, uh, picture. They're, they're romanticizing, you know, coming to the big arenas and, and being a huge star. And some get to be that huge star, but most don't. And uh, that's that's what I see a lot of today. Uh, I, I don't think there's that many who really understand. Uh, the sacrifice and dedication it takes uh, to, to really get where they want to be. They say they do, and they say they'll do anything and everything. And, and when I say, you know, there's three kinds of people in this world those who try, and when they don't make it, well, at least they say they tried. And then the person who says, I'll well, give it my best shot. When they don't make it, they say, well, at least they give it my best shot. And then I say there's that third kind of person who does whatever it takes. Nobody understands, I, I can't say nobody, the majority don't understand what I mean when I say. Whatever it takes. So uh, that's what I see out there today: is a lot of people coming in and wanting to be big WWE superstars, not understanding that uh, you know the whatever it takes entails entails a lot more more than they can ever imagine. I think
0: you know, or did you, I should really say, did you see? that becoming the be-all end-all for somebody trying to get into the wrestling business that it was.
2: Well, that, at the end of the day, especially today, really in, in all practical uh, you know, practicality, we'll say that, the only place you're really going to make a living is WWE. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be part-time or, or uh, looking for something to supplement your income. TNA is great. Ring of Honor is great. If you if you want to stay connected to the business, but the reality is, if you want to uh, make any kind of real living, and when I say real living, that means this is all you do. It's WWE, and a lot of guys. Well, again, I think most of the guys these days. Not everyone wants to go to WWE. I found out, but the majority of guys do want to go to WWE. I've talked to kids who who've been in the camp who, who who want to go to Ring of Honor. Uh, they they don't want to be on that big stage. You know, they they're happy doing what they're doing, and that's fine. That's great. Um, but do if you're gonna if you're gonna pursue this even as a part time hobby, uh, my feeling is you should be as good as you can and uh, uh, have passion for it. Love what you're doing. Put everything you have into it. Don't go in there with the attitude of. Uh, I'm, I'm going to half-ass it, or I'm a big star. You should uh, let me do all my big moves. Learn everything you can about it, and then have fun. But if you if you are looking to go to WWE in all earnest and, and seriousness, uh, take it seriously and and, and and don't take no for an answer. I always said if I could pursue my dream, because I had no connections, I wasn't uh, uh, brought up in the wrestling business. But I, I at 12 years old, I started taking pictures, and worked work my way into the wrestling business because I was this was all I could see myself doing. There was nothing else I wanted to do with my life. Nowadays, the kids don't realize what it takes to get to the performance center now or WWE. Um, and I say to the kids, the majority is what I'm talking about. They talk a great game, but they don't always uh, put forth the effort.
3: Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. But if we can rewind a little bit here and and talk about the late 70s and you basically uh, debuted, I believe, in 1979, but a little bit before that, your actual training. What was it like training under the Iron Sheep? From afar, it would seem like, man, I don't know how much of a good uh, wrestling trainer he would be. You know, he's he's, he's a little crazy. But what was it like training under the Iron Sheep?
2: Well, once again, it was a different business. It was a different time. And real quick, uh, I don't want to get long-winded on this, but I started taking pictures uh, for wrestling magazines when I was 12 years old. And my brother Ken got me a meeting with a promoter in Houston who was Paul Bosch. And uh, he got me at ringside every Friday night and take pictures for uh, for the magazines. I I took pictures for Gong Magazine and Wrestling News and – there was another Norm Keitzer and Jim Melby wrestling magazine back in the eight, uh, 70, excuse me. And eventually, after every Friday night, and I would tell Paul I wanted to be a wrestler, and Paul kept telling me, you're too small. Go to college. Get an education. I said, no, I want to be a wrestler. I'm going to be a wrestler. And eventually, as time went on, uh, you know, being at the matches every Friday night, one thing led to another. Uh, I worked my way into being a second, taking the jackets back, into being a referee on the spot shows and then eventually working at the Houston Wrestling Office during the summers. And every Friday afternoon, Gary Hart was the booker at that time, and he would come in uh, uh, Friday morning or Friday afternoon before the show to Paul's office and go to the matches, and he would bring uh, one of the boys with him, and, and while Paul and Gary were doing business, you know, the guys would maybe go grab lunch and then come back. And one day, one week, there was a, a football player who wanted to break into wrestling. So Gary brought the Iron Sheik who was wrestling at that time as Mohammed Farouk. He brought he brought uh the Sheik with him. And I always brought work out gear and carried it in my car just in case. Uh and on this Friday afternoon Paul looked at me and said, You can go with him and it was me, the sheikh and the football player. They actually needed me to drive him to the Coliseum. Uh, and and we went to the Coliseum, uh with the ring already set up in this huge, huge place and we go in the dressing room and she gets me his uh, amateur singlet and I get my shorts and shoes and the football players dress me shorts and shoes and, and it was uh we got to the ring and I'm thinking we're gonna learn how to tackle grab a headlock and, and all the the pro stuff I've seen 'cause I have because i do not know anything about amateur wrestling. But uh Cosgrove got us and, and told us to get on told me to get on all fours or uh, he got on all fours, that's what it was, and told me to turn him over. And uh, he's about 240. I'm buck 60, buck 70 at most. 16 years old. And I couldn't move the guy. He was solid. And then uh, the sheik says, okay, now you get on all fours. I'm going to turn you over. And within a split second, he had me on my stomach, uh, and pulling it up on my my neck in some hole I still to this day don't know what it was and it's telling me to scream, scream and I screamed man. I was screaming at an empty Coliseum and uh I screamed like a bitch. He made me humble, that's for sure. So uh he did he did the same thing to the football player and then he was teaching us how to lock up and uh he told us where to put my left hand um Around his neck, my right hand on his elbow, and when we went to lock up, I slapped him in the ear by accident, and uh, he slapped the dog. Sh- he slapped the dog crap out of me on that one too. He was a, he was a good wrestling coach, I guess, for that time and era because they weren't really giving you lessons. It was pretty much just stretching you to see if you would come back. And the football player came back one, one, one more week. He lasted two weeks, and after that, he said, "The hell with it." He didn't he didn't care for that too much. Uh, pretty much, he was teaching us respect to see if we we really wanted to do this because in the seventies, uh, everybody it was still real. You know what I mean? Uh, and you had to respect it. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, the guy didn't didn't go for that too much. So. I trained with, uh, I think, the Sheik maybe two more months, or two months, so it was Fridays, every time we would come with Gary, and that was about it. And it was basically just getting stretched. And uh, the way you really learned the business back then was by doing and wrestling every night. And that's pretty much how I, uh, uh, once, once I trained with uh, the Sheik for a little bit, and I got to break in with Nick Kozak and another guy, Joe Mercer in Texas, too. They had a ring in their record service. And Nick was a referee for Paul, and a former wrestler. And, and once uh, the Sheik left the territory, I started working out with them, and, you know. And, and eventually they ran a show uh, with Ernie Shavers on it. And uh, uh, so it went from there, man. Uh, you know, from the Iron Sheik training to Nick and Joe training and some of the guys who were just hanging around Houston doing some, some outlaw wrestling stuff, you know. uh it was different in the 70s because you, you had to know somebody who knew somebody to break in. I think just was, was my persistence and being around all the time that Paul finally said, let's go ahead and give you a shot. And, and that's pretty much how it happened.
3: Now, as we you know move a little bit forward in your career, through the, a little bit through the 80s, you were in the CWS, um, a couple-time, multi- or multi-time champion, I believe three-time world champion. Yeah, it's a memorable feuds with uh, guys like the Dirty White Boy, Tony Anthony, and so on. But then we move on to the USWA, and you're with Tojo Yamamoto and a guy that a lot of people are very familiar with, and that's Steve Austin. Did you see a lot in Steve Austin back then when you guys were in a stable together?
2: Uh, you know, you could tell that Steve was going to be somebody. He was going to be a top guy. Nobody, and I don't think I think they would be lying to you if they said, oh, yeah, you saw him as this, this groundbreaking superstar who broke all records. Um, you no, know, Steve had talent, and he was certainly somebody uh, just waiting to be molded. When I first saw him, a stunning Steve Austin. He had the long, stringy hair and a, a, a red... Robe, white boots, and the bike shorts. It just to me didn't resonate. Um, but but you knew he was uh, he was a lump of clay that somebody was going to mold, and they did. Uh, at the same time, Steve came to understand who he was, and and who Stone Cold Steve Austin became is is that guy uh, from the very beginning. I mean, he's he's a redneck from Texas who likes to drink beer, and he can kick your ass if he if he wants to, but he's an easygoing guy. He's a great, great person, uh, and he loves the business. He had a passion, and he had, um, and he had talent, and he, and he and he had a thirst to know. And he wasn't sure what he what he he needed to do, but but he he did you know. <laughs> Well, there's a there's a time when we were riding down the road and i didn't know that he steve even remembered this but he but he said it on on a couple of occasions i was riding with him and brian lee and um uh, i don't know where it came from we were talking and i asked brian i said what is so prime time about brian lee why do you call yourself prime time brian lee i don't get it and then i, I looked at steve and I said i don't get stunning steve austin you know i i mean you got a great body. You're you're a tough guy, but I don't see stunning Steve Austin. So, you know, we got in that conversation, and and Steve mentioned that uh, that's that's one thing that got him thinking uh, the correlation between a name and and the persona and and who you are, and, and it it's true. Um, you can't call yourself tough Tony Bourne if you're not tough. Uh, you can't call yourself gorgeous. Well, you can, but I mean, you have to. It all has to to fit together. It has to make sense. It has to mean something. Uh, and Steve had talent. He was just waiting for that moment. And when he got that moment, man, he uh, he took full advantage of it.
3: Oh, yeah, boy, did he ever. Now, in, the yeah. USW, in the USWA with you specifically, I mean, you were a multi-time champion. You were a tag champion. But a guy you feuded with there that obviously is making a lot of headlines lately is Jeff Jarrett. Did you see a lot in him then as well, and um, have you seen the um, the big mark in the business that he's making right now?
2: Well, I, I always liked Jeff, uh, and I always had really good matches with Jeff, um, and he came from a wrestling family. He came from a guy who was still in the business when most guys had already folded, so that's Talent in itself that Jerry Jarrett was was able to to survive when others couldn't. And Jeff um, Jeff is a smart guy. He's a real smart guy, and uh, he he understands the business. Um, I, I didn't see this. I didn't see him uh, doing TNA. I didn't I didn't give TNA a year, and they've been in, been in existence what twelve years now, thirteen years. Mhm. Yeah how long okay whatever it is yeah, and first, uh yeah. what 13 what, okay yeah well so i i didn't see him doing that that was a different model when, <laughs> excuse me when they started out with just pay-per-views um but i give him credit uh you know he, he went outside the box and started not not one company but two companies so um congratulations and kudos go to jeff uh I think the the result end result remains to be seen, but but man, you know I, I'm not going to count him out yet. Uh, and I always thought he was talented in the ring. Always did. That that's something. He was one of those guys, um, like a Brad Armstrong, that that I just clicked with when I got in the ring, and and that was always fun to work with.
3: Now, also in the USWA, you had a tag team partner that would become very. Uh, familiar with you, or very synonymous with you, and that was uh, Jimmy Del Ray. What was it like meeting him at, at that point? I guess that was, I guess you guys were tag team champs there. But what was it like when you first interacted with him?
2: Well, uh, Jimmy and I were two different kind of guys. He, um, uh, he it was by circumstance that he, he came to be my partner when Stan had uh, pretty much decided to. Uh, Uh, He wanted to pursue other avenues, and when Jimmy came on board, I mean, uh, we got along fine, but I I was one of those guys who liked to go in, and uh, if we went out, I I didn't like to cause a lot of uh, commotion, you know what I mean? I I, I Mm -hmm. wanted the the commotion to come to me if it's going to come to me, but I didn't want to invite trouble, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And Jimmy was just the opposite. He had to let everybody know we were there and that's that's good and bad. And so uh there were a couple of occasions where we just we decided, look, uh we'll work together but um uh, outside the ring we'll go a different ways and we did. And later on last year actually at um uh, at Fan Fest in Charlotte we re- we got back together and we talked about old times and uh You know, we just, we had a lot going on in both of our lives. You know, I had, uh, I had stuff, he had stuff, (laughs) and, um, we never, we never really talked about it, but, uh, he was just a different kind of guy. I was a different kind of guy too. I wasn't always easy to get along with either, but, I mean, I thought we worked well in the ring. It's just outside the ring, uh, he had his way of doing things and I had mine. And and who's to say which one was, uh. Uh, I don't think it was a right or wrong. I just think it was this way and that way.
3: Right, and we'll I'll definitely get back to uh, Jimmy in a little bit. But uh, first, I just want to talk about your intro into Smoky Mountain Wrestling, obviously with James E. Cornett, the infamous Jim Cornett. Now, when you started with the Heavenly Bodies, obviously you were, you were with uh, Sweet Stan Lane. But what was that partnership like? Like first getting to Smoky Mountain, working with Cornett again, and then uh, working alongside of Stan Lane.
2: Well, uh, he, the deal was when, when Jimmy called me in, uh, Jimmy had just left uh, WCW and Bobby had stayed because he was off the contract and he had a, a family to feed and he had things to take care of and uh, Stan and Jimmy had both had enough of uh, the management over there. So it was a great opportunity for me and Stan was a was laid back guy, a uh, funny guy and he was kind of like me in the sense that, you know, if we, if we went out... You know, let's let's just kind of be cool and see what happens. But uh, you know, let's not invite trouble. We're going to get enough trouble as it is. It seems. Uh, but but I got along great with Stan. And uh, and reiterate, I got along great with Jimmy too. It's just that that we had two different styles uh, outside the ring. And Stan was more kind of like uh, you know laid back and let's have fun and uh, don't 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 uh, push the issue if we don't have to type guy you know and uh it was it was a really really good time up until i think stan was getting to the point where it wasn't as fun for him anymore and he was coming from charlotte having to make these tennessee towns and and all the stuff up by knoxville and things like that so uh but he was a great guy man i I got along great with stan He he was one of my favorite people to be around in the ring and out of the ring and we've
3: interviewed uh, Kane before, and we were talking about Smoky Mountain with him. We interviewed Paul uh, Mahoney. We were talking about Smoky Mountain. We talked to Bobby Blaze. We talked to uh, Ricky and Robert. But what were your thoughts on that territory? Did you enjoy your time with Smoky Mountain?
2: See, I did. I did enjoy my time. We It was at that time when business was really changing, and we sure as hell didn't make a lot of money and sure as hell didn't get rich. But I, I give all the credit in the world to Jim Cornette. Uh, for taking that plunge and for going the extra mile to even try and open a territory at that time. Jimmy believed there was still a place and a market for wrestling, you know, the way it used to be and the way you like it, uh, you know, in his eyes. And and there might have been, but the times were changing and uh, uh, it, it wasn't going to last. But it, if it wasn't for Smoky Mountain and if it wasn't for Jim Cornette, uh, not myself, Jimmy, or Kane for that matter, um, and any Ricky and Robert, and whoever else got a shot at WWF at that time, you know, it was because of Smokey Mountain, it was because of Jim Cornette, and they can say what they want, but I, I know the backstory on that, and that's what happened, so once they got there, what what was going to be was up to them, uh, Kane made the most of it, he had the talent, he had the, everything they were looking for in a superstar, and... and and he's proved himself. In fact he you know came still lives in Knoxville. And uh but, but my time in Smoky Mountain was along with uh uh Pensacola had to be the favorite most two most favorite times in uh, my career.
3: And then you shift back in Smoky Mountain and you start teaming with Gigolo, Jimmy Del Rey again and you know, you guys obviously become the new heavenly bodies, uh, so to speak. You know, with obviously Dr. Tom, Cornette. And Jiggle uh, Jimmy, and one of the biggest feuds you guys had, as we just uh, talked about a little bit, was with Ricky Roberts, the Rock and Roll Express, awesome, awesome feud you guys had. Did you feel the chemistry, and it was it cool to be able to not only wrestle in Smoky Mountain, but also bring that feud to WCW, and also bring that feud to the WWF?
2: It was very cool, and and again, that was that was right at the beginning, um, and and Jimmy and I were clicking. In the ring, we were looking at the buildings and, and 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 knew what we had to do. And Ricky and Robert were just incredible, and they they had already been on the main stage and and they understood timing. They understood uh, they understood all all of it, and it really helped. Uh, we had that chemistry with uh, Cornette, you know, the backstory. But going to WWF at that time with with the match and. Uh, in fact, I think it was Survivor Series in Boston for the Smoky Mountain Championship. We went in and we thought we had a great match, man. We had it all lined up, laid out, and we knew what we were going to do. And they just cracked on the match. I mean, it was it was a Southern style match, and we were in the northern part of the country, and they let us know it, man. And say what you want, but there is a difference in the fans between the fans in the north and the south. So I, I can't explain it, and maybe, and maybe I'm just maybe it's just my perception. But um, man, Boston Garden hated that; it just appeared to hate it. We felt the hate, but sure something true to love. But it was cool working with them, man. Everywhere else we worked with them, uh, I thought we had a great, uh, great matches.
3: Great, great feud, and they're obviously one of the greatest tag teams of all time. And then you, you mix you guys in there as well, who were just awesome, and the chemistry was great. Obviously, I think you are right on that. The Southern fans are a little bit different. Uh, I kind of like the Southern style better. I think sometimes the Northern fans think they're a little bit too smart, but uh, it's a different opinion for a different day. But like I uh, continue right, on, right. you guys also had a really cool uh, few matches with uh, the Fantastics. You guys had a feud. You guys had a feud with uh, Tracy Smothers and Tony Anthony. And then one team that I wanted to bring up was you guys wrestled the Thrill Seekers a lot. Do you see a lot in Lance Storm? And uh, Chris Jericho at that point?
2: Yeah. Uh they were young. They they had that fire. There's there's that undeniable fire and uh both those guys you you could tell, uh, they loved what they were doing. I mean they, they were they were excited. You know, they came from Canada and, and they're down here in the south and they're getting wrestled pretty much on a regular basis. But I, I think the the newness wore up pretty quick for them too. And uh yeah, but uh, you, you could tell they they really had that spark and uh, they had the talent, that's for sure. I, I'm sure you've seen the match where Jericho bleeds like a stuck pig? Mm-hmm, yep. Oh, okay, well, that, that takes a lot of... The back story with that where he's practicing the uh, Shooting Star Press and he breaks his arm before the match, and uh, we had interviews for five weeks already laid out, and uh, you know he, he should have gone to the hospital. He should have got a cast. I think he put it in the cast. But uh, you know, he, instead of just saying no, I can't work tonight, he went out and not only worked, but he he, he just he made the match, in my opinion. So both those guys had the passion, dedication, and uh, uh, they did whatever it took to uh, to get to get what they wanted in wrestling. And again, kudos to both of them, man. And Jericho is an entertainment uh juggernaut i guess man he's he, he got his hands on being a game show host rock and roll star he can do it all
0: like you know to kind of reformat i guess where you were going with the direction at that point i
2: i really don't i don't remember how much panic was there i do remember when, when uh uh somebody told me he broke his arm and i thought yeah right and then then he did he broke his arm and i thought oh man well this is going to prove how we can uh, how how professional we can really pull this one off tonight. I, you know, it was, I, it was so, there was, there was so much chaos going on at the time. Uh, but I think because we were right in the middle of it and just had to get it done, I didn't pay that much attention to how, um, hectic, like I realized later that Jim was a one man show. Jim Cornette was really a one man show. He had, he had, uh, Brian Hills running. and, uh, Casey O'Connor helping him on some things with the promotion and street teams things like that but it was really Jim writing TVs writing out things that he wanted done and and announcer notes I mean that's a lot of effort and it's time consuming plus on top of everything else he he had to do to make things uh, click and and get uh, get stories on TV get guys to the towns and, and be responsible get the ring to the town I mean There was the little things that um, I'm sure were were pressing and panic and and wondering, oh, my God, are we even going to have a a ring there tonight? But being in the middle of it, I just figured everything was going to work out. And uh, for the most part, it did. I mean, it really, really did. And I think that goes back to just when you're going through hell, just keep on going. And that's what we did. And it wasn't like hell back then. It was just we were having a great time, and and like I said, we were sure as hell we weren't getting rich, but we were sure uh, doing what we wanted to do, and 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 still wrestling and uh, loving every minute of it. The
0: uh, the exact quote was it was like a Chinese fire drill, is what uh, John Cornette said. <laughs> yeah, about.
2: It, it probably wasn't, <laughs> and, and I'm sure there were a lot of times, you know, just showing up and and saying, oh, okay, well, let's make let's let's make it work. You know, it, it, it it's not supposed to, but we're going to make it work, and we did
0: without a doubt. Now, talk about if you can when you were kind of approached about doing the full WWF uh, Smoky Mountain run because you
2: um well, it was supposed to be just a one shot deal, and then they they brought us back uh, for Survivor Series or uh, yeah, SummerSlam then Survivor Series and. And I think that was supposed to be it, but then the uh, the trial was going on and and uh it was during the t- see I don't know if a whole lot of people remember uh if it was nineteen ninety three what was going what was going down because uh you know, I I tried to forget. Uh but yeah. you know, it was it was a way it was a way to get talent and I knew that and I knew when they hired us or, or wanted us to come up, they were really looking at Cornet to manage Yokozuna. The American spokesperson, spokesman for Yokozuna, yeah, because Jerry Jarrett was up there at the time, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, they weren't sure what was going to happen with, with the trial, and all events. So while all this is going on, they had to secure some kind of talent, some kind of uh, uh, outlet to get talent, and Smoky Mountain was a viable commodity. I mean, uh, and, and Jim was talented, they finally talked to Jim, to moving to Connecticut, and going up there, and uh, if you've talked to him, then I'm sure he's told you how he felt about that, and, and that's pretty much how it uh, how it went down. I, I only thought it was for a couple shots. In fact, that's kind of what was told to me, and then it, it just became more and more, and there were more guys who came from Smoky Mountain and had an opportunity and had a shot, and that was, again, thanks to Jim Cornette throwing their name in the hat. So uh Look, I I can't complain about that time. It was again, it was an opportunity. But uh, going back to my attitude, not being the easiest guy to get along with, sometimes you know, I had things going on in my life that uh, I probably should have should have not paid as much attention to. But you know, it was a great time either way. We were going places and uh, getting paid to see the world. So I mean, I have nothing to complain about. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and what better way to get indoctrinated into the uh, WWF than to be facing the Steiners at your first uh, <laughs> event which was SummerSlam uh 1993 uh what are your memories of your match with Rick and uh, Scotty uh the Steiner brothers in their hometown
2: yeah, we'll see. I didn't know those guys at all, and, and I'd always heard they, they could be moody at times. So, you know, Jimmy and I are thinking, oh, Christ, man, you know, yeah, we're in Detroit, and uh, they're, they're working with us, and, and these guys aren't going to like it too much, and I'm not sure how they're going to feel, you know. So we go in, and, and of course, they got to rib us and, and start with the uh, uh, comments in the dressing room like uh, – they, we had to do a beat down of them one night and they were acting like they didn't like it and they were pissed off and we're going, Oh Jesus, it's gonna just suck And but, but in the end it didn't suck because they were there were pros and they were good guys and uh, they knew, man, it's it's business and, <laughs> and that's no time to go out there, especially in your hometown and try and uh to be a tough well, I mean they could have been a tough guy. they could've done anything they wanted, but but honestly, uh they're were, they were pros, both of them. So I mean, they yeah. knew it was a cool time. Yeah, it was very cool. Yeah, and and, and once again, we wanted it to be good. They wanted it to be good. It was their hometown, and uh, their their family was going to be there. And and why not? So they knew we were there to make them to have a good match. And that's what we wanted to do.
0: Well, see, man, I
2: I, I think the, the guys. Knew what we were trying to do. The boys knew, but see, most of the boys had been there for a while too, and they understood Boston and they understood that that crowd, and they understood the vibe. And and we really we 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 didn't really know, I guess, as from what I can remember, we didn't really. I, I had a feeling there was a difference in the north and south crowd, uh, but until we got in there and we just. Uh, started doing these southern spots, and that's the only way I can describe it, because a southern wrestling match at that time uh, against a WWF wrestling wrestling match, or performance, or whatever they call it now, um, uh, sports entertainment match, was was, uh, not as spotty, I guess. We did a lot of spots. We did a lot of... uh, you know <laughs> the southern spots that we did the rock and roll um and not express spots, you know it was just uh four two different guys and then Bobby and Dennis and Bobby and Stan and uh but we did the the tag spots, you know the I don't think we did the Tennessee tiptoe spot in Boston, but we should have they deserve it. <laughs> uh but we but we did the turnbuckle spot you know where where you shoot the guy in. And, I sit on my ass and shoot Jimmy and his ass hits my face and Alfred for hip toss, smoky flip. You know, just just the stuff that we did normally in Smoky Mountain. And, and they said like, ah, bull. You know, so, I mean, they gave it to us and that was, but that's Boston then. They they either love you or they hate you. And same thing Madison Square Garden. You know, they just I mean it was booing like, God get out, you stink, not booing like we were booing the because that's what we're supposed to do. It's like, no, nah, they didn't care for us. But but that's all right too. That's that's
0: uh Bruce Pritchard, longtime WWF uh mainstay in the office. Um and I guess when you got there finally, what was your initial impressions of working for Vince McMahon? Um well
2: you know, it's it's uh, one of those things that uh, you're, any anybody who comes to the WWF the first time, uh, I would think would have to be intimidated because it's it's walking backstage is like uh, somewhere you've never been before. It's, it's WWE especially now. Uh, if you go the first time, you've never experienced anything like that because there's only one. Uh, wwe environment it's I, i've been to concerts and, and i've seen pyro and, and i've seen some cool stuff and i've been backstage but nothing is like the wwe and back then wwf environment it's uh every everybody's working together to make this the show click so when you meet Vince, and i'd already met Vince on a couple of occasions just really varied myself uh unintentionally, of course, but I mean, that's just what I seem have seen to have it doing. Um, you know, it was just, uh, how can I say this? We knew we weren't in the uh, the clique or the crew. We were we were there, but he had his ideas and he didn't see us as superstars, which is, once again, we we're glad to be on the card. But uh in order to be a superstar, or to be a main guy, you have to be involved. And and Jim was involved uh, up to a point, and Then they took him away from us and, and put him with uh, Yokozuna. And then he was on the creative team. And his hand, he could only do so much. And yeah, Bruce is the same way; he could only do so much. And you can't, you know, when you have somebody involved like that too, it makes it sometimes. Uh, I don't know if it's harder or if it's just you have to be more cognizant of the fact that uh, you can't keep going to somebody saying hey what about us what about us you know but but you have to have somebody on your side somebody who wants to uh, book you and put you there I'll never forget one of the first TVs we did we thought we had a great match with, with uh, enhancement talent and the next night someone came to me and said uh, came me and Jimmy and said Pat wants to talk to you guys and we're thinking oh good that's going to tell us what a great match we had Oh no, we were terrible. We we didn't know what we were doing. Why did we just beat the guys up? Well, why did we do what we did? And we tried to tell him, and he just shook his head and just pretty much buried us. So from then on, it was like, uh, all right, well, what do we have to do different? So we tried, but uh, we got what we got.
0: You know, it was it was an also...
2: intimidating experience. It was yeah, it was an intimidating experience for the first. Uh, first year or two we were there because we, we everything we did it seemed to be wrong. So
3: now I was actually in attendance at uh, WrestleMania ten, obviously it wasn't on the pay per view, but you guys had a match with the bushwhackers who I guess you quote unquote dark match. What was it like being a part right. of WrestleMania, especially a big one like WrestleMania ten at MSG?
2: No, I got that was very cool. I mean it was it was the first time uh in the garden and and being backstage and then opening a show like that. So uh, while you're right it wasn't on the card it, but it was it was still on the show. And it, it was it was very cool. I can't discount that at all. Because anytime once again, you know, I was told I was too small, I'll never wrestle, I'll never do any of this stuff, and much less wrestle in Madison Square Garden. And to be a world tag team champion regardless it's a work, yes, sure it is. But at the same time uh, just to be able to do that and be able to be part of that was uh, was a cool experience. So yeah, I won't uh, I won't say that it wasn't anything, but, but a pretty cool thing. Because there are there are some people who can say uh, they they haven't wrestled the Madison Square Garden, and and unfortunately uh, or fortunately, yeah,
3: definitely awesome to be there. And I actually have a really cool picture of the Heavenly Bodies because I was like I think seventeen or eighteen rows back, so I got a nice picture of my dad took that day. So. I always have that cool uh, memory there. But did you enjoy, as we move forward a little bit here, but did you enjoy when they made you cut your hair, you know, the classic Tom Pritchard look with long hair, and they made you cut the short hair, and they made you, you know, be blonde, and then you become the body Donna? Did you enjoy that? Not, it almost kind of goes against it.
2: Yeah, not not at all, not one bit. <laughs> no, I didn't. It was terrible. It sucked. And, you uh, know, I didn't enjoy it. I did it. Um, because there was an option Uh, either have a job or don't have a job and uh, I love Chris um, and I I like being around Chris but that was about the only thing but as far as cutting hair of Dinah Blonde every second it was terrible it it was a great opportunity Uh, at the same time uh, it was a (laughs) a miserable existence man so a short answer and Bottom
3: line is, no. didn't like it at all. It's funny. Um, if you really look at that team, obviously the body donors, and you had Sonny as well, but if you really look at that team, obviously you're a good worker. And then you look at Chris Candido, and you're like, man, this guy's a good worker. Why are they skip and zip the body donors? You know, you know what I mean? It's very uh, sports entertainment-ish, but so, like, um, almost like obnoxiously corny, did you think that it was you know a little bit of a of a weird gimmick to give two really good wrestlers
2: um certainly, and the reason they did it is because they could you'd be surprised that how many things you would look at and say, Why are they doing that what that makes no sense, and it's the only reason the only explanation is because we can hmm. and uh so you know, it, it, the, I, after after being there for a long time, you know you look at some things and you say, "Hmm, why is that?" And that can't be that petty. It can't be that that ridiculous. And then you kind of find out, "Oh yeah, it is that petty. It is that ridiculous." So um, while I have nothing <laughs> nothing negative to say, uh, I, I some of sometimes you think. Are they really doing that just because? Well, oh, sometimes they are really doing that just because.
3: Yeah, it's definitely strange. I feel like sometimes it's just like has an ego trip, or whoever's you know writing it has an ego trip, and I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna you know make this guy look bad or make that like guy look bad.
2: Well, let me ask you this: Do you remember when Jericho won the belt? Oh, excuse me, the championship or the title, and he was picking up dog crap. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, very yeah. weird, yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah, go back and look <laughs> at that. And you ask you would ask yourself, why, wait, you just want the title. Well, yeah, you just won the title, but we're going to show you that we can do whatever we want you to do. I mean, it it is what it is, and I, I hate that phrase, but it's the only way to explain things sometimes, uh, because there's, there's no other explanation. Um, you know, why would you make somebody go out and do this ridiculous gimmick? You know, all they have to do is say no. I mean, yeah, right, and just say no. Yeah, well, you won't be on TV, or or whatever it may be. Um, and I don't know if it's an ego trip or if it's to show you that we, we can make you do what we want or we can, we can do this because we know you will. And, uh, you know, that's been a sign of discontent Uh, With a lot of guys, and and a
0: source of discontent, I guess, with a lot of guys. So, uh, changing the wording in an announcer's mouth. Do you think that that's really kind of hurting the integrity of the in-ring product?
2: Well, I I don't know necessarily hurting the integrity, but I but I do know that there's WWE. does have some very smart and talented people running things now um at the same time, you do get caught in the bubble uh a lot of times where where you you can't really see or hear anything except what you <laughs> what you're allowed to see or hear and um you know just by by making changes just just because you you've stayed the same for so long, that can be good no matter if it's a, a, a small change, and that's whatever the, the words they couldn't say on TV and I don't remember what they were, but I know he's, certainly you don't talk about a belt because a belt's what you buy at J.C. Penney's. It's a championship. It's a title. Okay, I, I understand that point, but Vince and and the powers that be, whoever it may be, and, and Michael Hayes has, has a lot of influence, and I think Michael's severely... Underrated as far as what he's done for uh, for talent and for what he's done for the company, uh, but, but sometimes you know you get stuck in that groove and that bubble week in and week out that you can't really hear or see anything else uh, because you're involved. I mean that's a 24/7 job. So when it comes to uh, making your product new and different, you know who do you look to for that? Who who do you? What outside sources do you get to see? What outside outside uh voices do you hear um so I mean, I don't know if the verbiage is that important, but I believe the verbiage is very important um in telling stories, and that's what they do every week is they tell stories uh the talent is obviously the most important thing, and um. You know, it's up to up to the guys to uh, tell the stories, and you have your storytellers, and Michael Cole and uh, Saxton now, and uh, John Bradshaw Layfield. And if if Vince wants it that way and it works, then great. But if Vince wants it that way and it doesn't work, then well, then somebody has to tell the emperor that things aren't working. And who's going to be the guy to do that? Yeah, Absolutely. I and, and I agree that. No, I I agree that documents and and things like that don't need to be leaked. It really, except for just people who want to know what's going on, I I get that part, but also I I don't really see the point in in leaking it. I mean, I really don't. Uh,
0: Dwayne Johnson coming in and uh, what he had when he came to the table with the lineage of his family and what Dr. Tom was able to teach him.
2: I don't know that I was able to teach him that much. He came in August and he debuted in October, man, and he'd been in Memphis for a year. And we just trained and we worked out at that time with Ockham and uh, Mark Henry. Uh, he was a a young kid, uh, great guy, had the chia pet haircut, and you knew he had talent. Once again, you couldn't tell, no one could tell at that time that he was going to be as big as he is today. Uh, but he had personality. Um, you know. To go over his finish, I, I gave him the uh, shoulder breaker. Well, that was terrible. So, I mean, I can't, I can't take credit for that. But we, I worked uh, some of his first matches on the road. Um, worked with him in the, in the uh, warehouse in the ring on a daily basis. And uh, he had that charisma. He had that personality. Uh, but once again, you know, you looked at him, and he's here's a smiling, good-looking guy, good-looking kid. Uh with the Chia Fat Haircut, coming out and, and want everybody to cheer for me, yay, yay, yay. Well that was kinda like we were coming out wanting people to, to hate us and like us all at the same time. It just didn't work. people, you know, were, were revolting against that typical baby face guy back then. And and it was to his advantage because he knew and he understood once it was once it was explained to him, once he got the feel of it, once he got to be who he really is Was that smart, Alec? You know, come back with a comment, kind of guy. Um, That really gave him a a platform. You know, I had no idea that he his his goal in life was to be the the performer, the actor that he is. Uh, But but I mean, he got that stage. He got the stage in wrestling, and, and that's how. The people who made the mummy movie saw him, and uh, um, gosh, man, he was always an entertaining guy, always a likable guy, always uh, fun to be around.
3: Now, another guy that you uh, were a huge part of training and he kind of became a big deal as well was Kurt Angle. Did you see a lot in him, especially with his uh, amateur background and his Olympic gold?
2: Actually, yeah, man, Kurt. Uh, the first time I locked up with him, I-, I told him before we locked up, Kurt, I have nothing to prove, so don't try and snatch me because I have n- nothing to prove to you, man. So, but first time we locked up, he was he was easy. He got it. He moved well, and uh, to me, he was a natural. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, but he was another guy who you just knew he had this drive. And he had this uh, work ethic, and uh, in fact, let me just say this about about Rock and Mark Henry. Both they they both had the work ethic too. Uh, Brock is Malcolm Albright, he he had work ethic. He just didn't have the uh, ability to grasp what this business is. So, uh, but Kurt grasped it right from uh, the beginning. He knew he understood. It's like a practice scrimmage. You know, we're going out and we work hard. But we're not trying to uh, uh, actually. Uh, we're working together, and that's a that's a real uh, conflict with most amateur wrestlers I've ever had because their instinct is to not get put on their back and uh Kurt grasp that idea from the first time we uh, we trained.
3: It's funny if you really look at your like resume as far as training guys, it's pretty uh heavy list i mean you throw in the hardy boys who you had a hand in training edge obviously you mentioned mark henry the fellas i believe dolph ziggler and then obviously the two big ones are the rock and kurt angle but is there anybody in particular that you say to yourself man i'm so proud i trained them or do you kind of just put them all
2: in the same grouping? you know it wasn't if i didn't have the opportunity uh to do it in Stanford, then it would have been someone else. So I happen to be at the right place at the right time. Now, you have to ask them what they learned from me. All I know is I learned from, uh, I had a great teacher who went to karate named Bill Gray. And his, his method of teaching, um, I feel like I had adapted and adopted as well. So you would have to ask those guys, what they learned from me and I, I would have to say I'm proud of all those guys, especially Rock and Angle. Uh the Hardy Boys were self taught before they came to me, so I mean and Ziggler uh came to try out in OVW and then came from OVW to Tampa. Um he is another guy that I'm I'm proud that he came from uh uh to what was it? Uh, Georgia, uh not atlanta right outside of mcdonough thank you i'm trying to think of it mcdonough and and the D south guys fandango johnny curtis i'm proud of all those guys that came through and i'm proud if they if they took something away from what i either showed them or said to them then more power to them and, and great but i i really have to give those guys credit edge and christian they started with a guy named ron hutches who uh trained some pretty heavy guys himself and then they came to, to the tryout in Stanford, and and whether we refine them or not, um, you know, they'll have to give you their their opinion on that. So I know that that I got in the ring and taught what I knew to the guys, and it uh, goes for Roman Reigns and Dean Ambrose, guys who grew up in the business. Seth Rollins, who was Ring of Honor champion, Ambrose has been around. Uh, uh, Rollins, not Rollins, pardon me. Um, Roman Reigns uh, grew up in the business, you know, so they they had something before they actually got to the to the system and got with me. But if I helped them uh, get farther than that, then great. I'm proud of them for that. And you'd have to ask them what they think about that. Because so, I hate to and people say, well, yeah, you trained The Rock. The Rock, man, grew up in the business, and he had it. And he went to Memphis and was pretty much uh, – uh, rounded off when it came to Stanford. So, you know, I, I'd love to take credit for it, and I'd love to say it was just because of me, but that's not true.
3: Now, obviously, in your career, I mean, you did, we went through a lot of the training you did in South and with WWF, and then, you know, uh, with Florida Championship Wrestling, and all the guys that became big stars, but going back to you, you've wrestled in your career, I mean, we mentioned a lot of the tag team guys, but, I mean, you've wrestled, Brett, you've wrestled HPK, Sid, Austin, Angle, Rock, we we mentioned Jeff Jarrett, but do you have a favorite match or matches that you've had in your career?
2: You know, uh, any any match I had with Brad Armstrong uh, was my favorite match. And, uh, again, I I did have some great matches with Jeff. Um, So uh, the the Rock and Roll Express and the Fantastics and uh, I'll say Lance and uh, Jericho. Uh, but you know, it, yeah, I've, I've had I've had a lot of really good matches. I think, uh, and, and but the favorite ones were the guys that I clicked with, and the ones that uh, you know you go out there, you didn't have to call anything in the back, and that's way too much today. I think uh, everybody walks through every move in their match, and that's that's what it looks like. Except you know, I have watched Raw on occasion where I've seen some matches that. That are called in the ring, you can tell when what is happening, uh, <laughs> and you can tell when they're calling and going back. But, but any time if you get in the ring and just just go, and we didn't have to uh, didn't have to call it move for move. That was my favorite match, and uh, Brad Armstrong could do that uh, rock and roll. Jeff Jarrett, um, man, so those those the matches I really like.
3: Would you say Brad is probably your favorite opponent of all time as well?
2: I would say I would say Brad is yeah, certainly.
3: I feel like he's a super underrated talent. I mean, a lot of people know the Armstrong name, obviously very great lineage and legacy with the name, and then Road Dog might be the most popular, but by far uh, Brad is probably the best wrestler of the bunch.
2: Right. Well, Brian was certainly the best entertainer along with Bob uh Brad had that uh yeah, he was a technical guy, but he was he was so smooth in the ring, it was uh you you, you could anticipate each other's moves and uh, that was after the first couple of times we ever uh <clears throat> excuse me worked together. So yeah, Brad was the uh, the smoothest uh one of, of the whole family next to next to Bob and then you have Brian and Scott and Steve. But um yeah as far as my favorite opponent, the guy that just uh you know, we could go out there and we could do, I mean, we've done 30 minutes. We could do 10, 15, whatever you needed and, and not have to call it, not to worry about it, and sometimes wouldn't even have to say anything. And uh, I'd shoot them off the ropes and we'd just see what came next. I mean, that was the fun part about it, man. And that's what, that was uh, what really used to be the most fun part about it, is go out there and create something. And uh, somebody like Brad or even Jeff, uh, or the rock and roll, man, you didn't have to say a whole lot. You could go out and just uh, feel it.
3: Now, with uh, you training down in Florida Championship Wrestling, one question that I really wanted to ask you was, obviously they put the the Shield together, and they were all in um, FCW at the same time, and they spent a brief period in NXT as well. But it seemed like Ambrose was kind of a guy that they liked. Rollins was a guy that they were kind of like, yeah, he's, he's pretty good, but not being smart to realize that he was by far the best of the three, I think. And then it was then there was Roman Reigns, who they were huge on. Obviously, the you know, family member of The Rock, and uh, he has maybe the best look out of all three of them. Or you know, maybe they feel like he had the biggest upside. But what did you think about those three? Did you see them and think that Rollins was the best, like like I like I just uh, said, or do you think that they're correcting and anointing Roman Reigns like the the next future star of the WWE?
2: Well. Once again, when uh Ambrose got there, he was the most unique of the three in my opinion. Uh he had a mix of Terry Falk and Roddy Piper. Um and, and he was he was the real deal. He he uh he never let you in on, on what he was thinking, even in the dressing room or even in class or he, that that was the good part about him. He kept that mystery about him, even though you knew he was working, he, he didn't tell you he was working. Um, and then Ambrose, uh, or Ambrose, pardon me, Rollins, uh, he he had that sure in this. He knew he was good, and he was good. He was great. He and Ambrose had uh, had their angle in FCW, and that was, that was our top angle up until they went to the uh, Performance Center, too. And you knew that uh, Roman Reigns was going to be great because he had the stock. He came from the stock they wanted. Now the way it turned out, um, once again, you have to peel back the layers and you have to look at the uh, business end of things. How how did Seth Rollins get in that position? Uh, Seth's a smart guy. Ambrose is a smart guy, but I don't know if he's as good a politician as Seth Rollins is. And that's not taking any anything away from Seth. But you have to know how to play the game, and you have to know who's who's running the game out there. So Seth. Seth got in with the right um people and he has talent and he had everything uh, going for him. Rambrose I thought was, was very talented. There were some in F C W who didn't think he had the look or the or the talent to be a top guy. They were all they were high on uh range from the start. Just like you said, he had the had the family background, he had everything going for him. Uh, Rollins, or pardon me, Ambrose and, and uh, Rollins uh, were going to be bit players at, in FCW. That was the, uh, the take on them. But as things, as time went on, and uh, other factors came came into play, um, the Shield came about, and uh, then they fractioned off into what they uh,
0: became.
3: It, it's funny just looking at it and, and thinking, like, oh, WWE really High on Reigns, but it's almost like did they not realize Rollins is, is the best of the bunch? And uh, I think that then maybe Triple H or whoever finally realizes, like, man, this guy—he, you know—he's—he's he it out of out of the three of them. I mean, maybe Reigns could grow into that role, but right now, Rollins is the best guy in WWE. Well,
2: I think it goes back to being in that bubble, and who's going to be the one to break that through that bubble and say, "Hey." Let me give you my opinion. Let me give you my take on things and, and give you a new spin on it, and then, then look at it from a different angle. And I believe that that's what happened with uh, not only Reigns and and uh, Rollins and Ambrose, but a, with a few people. You know, because when you're when you're in that bubble every week, and, and, and you know you don't you, you do you, the schedule. I mean, they fly out on Friday, do the shows, and Monday. Uh, Raw Tuesday SmackDown Wednesday they're back to writing again and then you just that's that constant schedule so um, it takes someone giving a new perspective to the, that the, the powers that be in the bubble and say let's look at it like this give it a chance and uh, we'll see who the guy is and I think that's what they do with Rollins I think that's what they do with Rain and uh, and Ambrose
3: yeah definitely. Now, if I could just go back to you for a second, and um, as we start to uh, wind it down a little bit here, obviously you've had an enormous career. You started in you know, the late 1970s. You said you were taking pictures at ringside. You were a referee. You were a wrestler. You were a trainer, coach, producer. I mean, you name it, you've done it. And you also were actually, um, I don't know if a lot of people are aware, it's almost the prelude to the podcast, and you were involved in Bite This um, the WWE produced show and so many aspects of the business that you've been involved in. I mean, just that is just a small sample. Obviously a huge part has been the actual wrestling, but what's been your favorite aspect that you've been involved in, in the wrestling business? Was it, you know, the physical wrestling?
2: Yeah, I think wrestling and, uh, and training both, man. Um, because when, it, when you're wrestling, it, you, you got to go out and perform and, and just worry about your match. And, uh, and, and it was the most fun I've had. But at, at, once I started training guys and the satisfaction of uh, seeing them succeed or, or breaking through uh, was a lot of fun, too, and a lot of uh, um, satisfaction on my part. So, you know, I, I, I've been fortunate to be able to do all the stuff I wanted to do. And, uh, As I said earlier, I I have nothing to complain about. I can I can probably complain all day long, but in reality, it's it's about absolutely nothing. Um, You know, I've done things my way and made mistakes, and uh, at the same time, I've had a pretty good um, pretty good run at what I wanted to do. So, and I still here's the great thing, man. I still have the opportunity to train guys and, and. I'm getting calls from people. This summer is probably the busiest summer I've had. Uh, next week, then I'm going to Vegas for uh, Freak Show Wrestling for two days, 16th and 17th, and then 18th and 19th, we're going to Los Angeles with Freak Show Wrestling. And the week after that, I'm in Texas for a camp. Um, you know, so, I mean, then we have Charlotte, the Fan Fest at the end of the month. Uh, so, you know, I'm, that's, that's pretty cool to still be... Uh, Getting booked for these camps and have people come out and want to hear what I have to say, and and once again it's 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 all the same. It's just a, it's an opinion, and uh, there's not just one way to do this stuff. You know, I have your I have my way, you have your way, but the one way, the only way, the right way does not exist. Uh, Vince said it a long time ago. Show me the stone. Show me where it's written in stone. This is the only way we can do it. And that's that's so cool to be able to go out and tell somebody who has hopes and dreams that I'm going to give you some ideas and I'm going to give you a, a direction. It's not the only direction. It may not be the direction you need to take necessarily, but listen to what I say, see if it works for you, and seek out other people as well. Don't just stay stagnant. And, and real quick, uh, if anybody's listening who wants to wrestle, you have to get out there. You can't stay in one place and expect to make it. You have to go out. And, and it has to be a passion of yours, and you have to be willing to lose money, lose lose friends, lose girlfriends, lose whatever it is, because that's what it takes. And if you want to make it, you have to do whatever it takes. But um, that's probably been the, the, the thing that I really enjoy the most now is
0: training and
2: uh, get to see the, the guys make it.
0: And, Dr. Tom, where could we find you? Where where could the fine folks go if they want to book Dr. Tom or if they want to reach out on social media?
2: They can go to drtompritchard.com. That's my website. There's a place to contact me there. I'm also on Twitter at Dr. Tom Pritchard. And I have a Facebook, uh, Tom Pritchard. It's on Facebook. So, you know, there's and I've got a lot of camps off Facebook and a lot of people have contacted me on Facebook and Twitter. And, and, again, the website. So, I mean, there's there's uh, three different venues right there you can uh, contact me at and uh, we'll go from there.
1: This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube.